Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to hopefully resume here in September of 2021. Uh, and that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome two fantastic journalists and authors to SALT Talks that are out uh, with a recent book about the Trump administration's response to the pandemic crisis. Uh, Yasmin Abu Talib is a national reporter at the Washington Post covering health policy with a focus on the Department of Health and Human Services, health policy on Capitol Hill, and healthcare in politics. Interesting beat to be on over the last 18 months, to say the least. Uh, Damian Paletta is the White House economic policy reporter for the Washington Post. Before joining the Post, he covered the White House for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the new book that these two co-authored is called Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic That Changed History. And I think as this entire wave of Trump books has come out, I think a lot of them, there's a little bit of uh, staleness to a lot of the content. You know, we know that the administration was chaotic and incompetent and, and uh, politicized in many ways. But I think this book, very unique in the way it tackles the politics of the pandemic and why it ended up being such a disaster uh, that it was for the country. But hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, uh, which is a global alternative investment firm. I have to mention, since we're talking about politics and public policy that Anthony did spend 11 days uh, within the Trump administration as communications director. But with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. So you see, it's try to, it's, he's trying to knock me down a peg, Yasmin. You see what he's doing? Okay, that, that just, a, oh, he got fired from the White House after 11 days. I didn't say fired. I said you so spent me, 11 days. It could me, have been. Let me just tell you something, okay? It's okay to do this in July, but I just want to let you know, I decide bonuses sometime around Thanksgiving. So you better stop between now and Thanksgiving. Just letting you know that. Okay. It might have raised you up a peg, actually, by saying that you got it's, out so quick. Well, yeah, it might have raised me up a peg. That in fact, I got fired. It's a badge of honor let, at this point. Let, let's talk about this book, which is an incredible book. You guys did a brilliant job, and I'm I'm. Uh, I started out by saying that a lot of it is hard to believe. Okay, so let's start with you, Yasmin. You, you wrote the book, Damien, you guys wrote the book, but when you're reading parts of it in terms of policies and decision-making, it's like, oh God, how, how could that have been made like that? Tell us one of the more outrageous things that happened that you're like, okay, I can't believe I'm writing this, but it is factual, and so therefore I'm writing. I think one of the most devastating incidents Damien and I came across was this plan that a top health official had proposed to send a mask to every American household. Uh, they wanted to send like a packet of five masks to every house in the US. And this official, Bob Cadlick, who was the head of emergency preparedness at the Health and Human Services Department, had already worked with a couple of undergarment manufacturers like hockey, uh, sorry, Jockey and Haynes. And um, they were, the plan was that they were gonna manufacture 650 million masks by sometime in May. And the, the goal was for the government to send these masks to everyone through the US Postal Service, which is an important detail for later, 
Um, and that way you just depoliticize this whole thing. Obviously wearing masks was a pretty new concept to Americans. And they wanted to say, you know, this is recommendations coming from the president, it's coming from the White House, uh, just do this to protect yourself and protect your neighbor. And that plan got shot down in the task force for a couple of reasons. One was the vice president's chief of staff, Mark Short, did not like that he felt that Cadlick was freelancing, that he had sort of done this without going through the normal processes at the Office of Management and Budget. And part of the reason for that was because I think Cadlick knew it would probably get killed if he went through the process that way. Um, and also that they didn't want to be alarmist. This was in late March by sending masks to everyone. And even though the health officials had coalesced around recommending that all Americans wear masks, uh, the, some of the political officials still were not on board with this and were afraid of how Trump's base might react. And so this was pulled off the agenda. Mark Short made sure it never got back on. And another part of the reason it got killed was because there was concern that the president was not going to go for a plan that relied on the U.S. Postal Service, because at the time he was waging a war against the Postal Service. Uh, they were worried about mail-in ballots ahead of the election. And so I, Damien and I thought this was such a great example of the completely disastrous policymaking process throughout the response. It's, it's not going through normal channels. It's yanked off the agenda, not even discussed for political reasons. There's this president's weird aversion to the Postal Service. And so this whole plan gets nixed. And it's one of those moments where you just wonder how different things would have gone if in March and April and May, the government was just sending people masks and it was not turned into this political cudgel. So, so Damien, you and I've talked before. Let me hold up the book here. I've got it here on my phone because uh, I left it, unfortunately, on my nightstand last night. Uh, it's a brilliant book. It, it goes into in-depth detail on what happened and how many avoidable things there were. But to me, Damien, one of the most alarming things in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like the administration was waging an all-out war against the medical and scientific community in the United States. That's the thing I got out of the book. And so why, Damien? Well, I, I mean, well, I, I have that right, first of all, and then secondarily, why? If I yes, absolutely. And it's one of the, I think one of the worst legacies, obviously the death of six, deaths of 600,000 people is a terrible, terrible a legacy of this. But one of the worst legacies is what we're living through now, which is that the president by attacking the scientists and the medical professionals has ceded all this distrust to this day in vaccines and science. So not only is he, he's out of office, he's gone, right? He's lost his Twitter account, but there's still millions and millions of people who believe this mindset that he kind of implanted in them, which is, you know, I'm right, the scientists are wrong, believe me, don't believe them. And that I think it really got started in the early days of this when, you know, um, to his credit, Azar and obviously Fauci and Burks and others were warning that this could be really bad. And the president was so used to deflecting every crisis that came his way, you know, whether it was the impeachment or, you know, all these um, scandals with women and stuff, everything just sort of kind of fell off his back. He was like Teflon. And he said, this will be gone in 15 days. There's just a few cases when it gets warmer, it's going to go away again. He was, you know, creating this counter narrative to all the science. And that got harder, obviously, as the virus really sank its teeth into the country. And so instead of kind of reversing course or acknowledging, hey, you know, um, the scientists were right, I was wrong. He just kind of doubled and tripled down. He brought in Scott Atlas and other people who would kind of reaffirm his beliefs that this was just like the flu. And 
there came a point when it was just too late to change course. You know, obviously the, the one of the biggest moments of this, the best example, sadly, was when he got sick and and nearly died. You know, he he did not wear a mask. He packed the White House with people. He was a month from the election and his poll numbers were bad. So he was doing whatever he could just to kind of send this image that he was indestructible and the country was indestructible. And obviously the virus got him and it got him bad. And in uh, over that weekend, Yasmin and I report in the book that um, the doctors, his, you know, the Redfield and others um, met and talked and said, well, let's pray that this is the, t the moment, the kind of epiphany that he's needed, you know, to see how dangerous this is. And they thought there's no way this guy could be on the brink of death and emerge with the same kind of cavalier attitude about it. And sure enough, you know, the whole world watched as he walked up those steps and took off the mask and said, don't be afraid. Um, you know, Redfield's heart sank and a lot of other people thought, well, there's no way he's going to reverse course now. It's going to, he's just going to drive us off the, the ledge. And that's what ended up happening. So Yasmin, explain this to me because it's, uh, you write about it eloquently in the book. You guys do Operation Warp Speed, uh, very successful. It was actually a great idea to funnel money out to the different pharmaceutical companies to backstop their risk taking to expedite the virus, uh, the vaccine for the virus. Uh, and yet the Trumpers, they don't want to take the vote. So he should get credit for Operation Warp Speed, but at the same time, we're not going to take the vaccine that he should get credit for. So can you square the circle for me? I wish I could. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a couple different pieces to that. Yes, he deserves credit for Operation Warp Speed, as does his administration. And it's it's kind of funny in this ironic way because the vaccine was probably the hardest thing to do and to get it done in record time. And it's the one thing they did successfully. So it's kind of heartbreaking in a way because you wonder if they had brought the same level of focus and energy and resources to other parts of the response, how things might have gone differently. Um, but yes, they, they decided to make this massive investment to take out the financial risk for these companies so that they could just throw everything they had into the R&D of the vaccine. Um, they helped them get access to manufacturing facilities so that they could manufacture doses of the vaccine before they knew if they worked, to basically to get rid of lags in the whole process. Um, but the president, while he does deserve credit for the administration taking this on, undercut confidence in the vaccine at every step of the way because it became clear by the summer of 2020 and especially into the fall as we got closer to the election that he was berating the FDA to move faster on the vaccine. He made it clear in completely explicit terms that he wanted it before the election. And you could see in, in public polls how much trust was falling in this whole process. You're already asking people to really trust that the FDA knows what it's doing because the fastest vaccine before this one had been developed in four years. Now we're looking at one developed in under a year. So people need to feel assured that the FDA is not cutting corners, that it's doing a full safety and effectiveness evaluation. And if they feel like it's being done for political purposes, that's just gonna undercut trust more and more. But unlike you know, the vice president, Dr. Fauci, a number of his administration officials, the president did not get vaccinated on TV. He did not sort of give a public display of confidence in the vaccine in that way. We Why? found out Why? Well, the, he has a complicated history with vaccines. So a lot of his base are anti-vaxxers. They don't believe in this. They're fueling a number of conspiracy theories about the vaccine. You can see on Fox News every night, 
Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, who's changed his tune somewhat, are railing against vaccination campaigns and trying to get people vaccinated. So there's this there's this dual thing of him wanting the vaccine before the election because he thinks it will give people confidence the virus will go away, but also not wanting to alienate that portion of his base. And he also has his own complicated view on vaccines. He's kind of flirted with anti-vaccine uh, views in the past. Yeah, anything he didn't conspiratorial, get vac- he throws out there. You know, it's like a it's like a Duraframe log. Anything that he can throw out there that seeds the so sows the seeds of distrust, he'll throw out there. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Well, I mean, to to your point, when you were asking the question, there's this dual thing of wanting credit for the vaccines, but also not doing anything to help more people get vaccinated. What a lot of, I think, doctors, including Dr. Fauci, learned last year was that Trump supporters really hang on his every word. So you just have to wonder how many more people would get vaccinated among the holdouts right now if the president had, you know, A, gotten vaccinated on TV and B, was out there right now saying, this was such a big accomplishment of my administration. You should go out and get the vaccine. It's safe and effective. But of course, we're not seeing that happen. I I would just add to that, Anthony. I mean, there's actually no evidence that he has been vaccinated. Okay. He said it on Fox News on a radio interview. There's no photograph, as he has been said. There's no doctor who said anything. You know, I think this kind of allows his supporters to question. You never, you never met a bigger baby than this guy. Trust me, he's been vaccinated. Okay, he's a big, big baby. I guarantee that he's been vaccinated, with or without his diaper. I'm not sure. But let's go to a question that's important to me. Uh, this is the Rand Paul, Anthony Fauci, squaring off on each other. So go ahead. You know, obviously I'm biased, so you have to forgive me. I know that I know Anthony Fauci a long time. I have an enormous amount of respect for him. And I think that uh, Rand Paul wears a tinfoil hat to work. But go ahead. You tell me what's going on there. Well, I would just, you know, the opening scene of the book is from August 2020 when Fauci takes a letter that he received at his house and opens it in his office with a letter opener and all this white powder kind of explodes all over his face. And, you know, he screams for security. They have to strip him down essentially naked and decontaminate him. They thought it could be ricin or anthrax. I mean, there were a lot of people who wanted to hurt this guy. And in part, it was because of people like Rand Paul and President Trump, who were just, you know, demonizing him and, and alleging that he was destroying the country. I think the the threats against Fauci have only gotten worse since the inauguration of Biden. You know, a lot of people, including Rand Paul, have essentially suggested that it was all Fauci's fault that Biden won, that Trump lost. Uh, You know, Rand Paul, I think, was one of the first members of Congress to get coronavirus. He still refused to wear a mask. I mean, he, he, you know, is kind of an outlier in terms of Congress and, you know, his thinking on the Fed and the economy. But there are many millions of people who agree with his, you know, conspiracy theory that, Fauci created the virus with like in cahoots with the Chinese and this kind of stuff. I mean, it's completely out of this world crazy, but he continues to feed it. And I think Fauci, you know, Fauci does go toe to toe with them. I mean, it's a lot of people on Capitol Hill will be careful when they testify, will be careful not to be, you know, too adversarial, but Fauci, you can see how pissed he is that this guy has the nerve, this doctor, no less, has the nerve to question him. Um, and Yasmin, I, we've talked about it a lot. I mean, it's it's not going to go away, and Fauci is not going to back down. And this guy's eighty years old, and he he's visibly pissed. But but I mean, so and the, I think, 
Well, let's let's talk for our viewers' benefit. Yasmin, what are the allegations that Senator Paul is making? And then what is the refutation of those allegations? So a lot of this, Senator, and, and Senator Paul started this last spring, and it's just a theme in all these hearings whenever Fauci appears before the Senate Health Committee, that the virus may have accidentally escaped or was engineered in a lab in Wuhan that the NIH had provided, indirectly had provided some funding to. So the, the short version of it is there is no evidence that the virus was deliberately engineered and unleashed on the world. That's been pretty clearly shot down. There are still questions about whether it may have accidentally leaked out of the lab and started an outbreak that way. And the way it accidentally leaks is it maybe infects a lab worker and the outbreak goes from there. Um, and what happened was the NIH had, had provided this grant to a New York group called EcoHealth Alliance back in 2014. And part of that grant went to the Wuhan lab because they are one of the top labs in the world, one of two or three on coronaviruses because so many of them originate in China. So there are all these allegations that the NIH funded the Wuhan lab. And of course there are some right-wing conspiracy theorists who have taken that several steps further, said Dr. Fauci worked with the Wuhan lab to create the virus and unleash it, which of course is, is nonsense. The, 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 the root of this is that a subgrant from the NIH went to the Wuhan lab and it's like a $600,000 grant. And that grant was actually suspended last year when these questions started circulating about the origins of the virus, which we still don't know. But Senator Paul in every hearing insists on bringing this up. And in the hearing just a few days ago, he took it further than he ever has by accusing Fauci of perjuring himself by lying to Congress. And that's when you saw Fauci really kind of stand up and defend himself because he said, I've never lied. He said, if anyone was lying, it was Senator Paul. Uh, because Senator Paul was trying to imply, or not even imply, just state that Fauci had lied to Congress by saying that the NIH had not funded what's called gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab, which there's no way to know whether the lab was conducting it or not, but the NIH grant was not approved for those purposes. So I know John has a ton of questions for you guys, but I have one more question that's bothering me a lot, and I, I want to get both of your reactions to. Um, I have family members that won't get vaccinated. I have mm -hmm. school teacher friends of mine that will not get vaccinated. Uh, I came in this morning to a litany of email death threats because I was on CNBC last Friday telling people they have to get vaccinated if they want to come to our conference or if they want to work here at Skybridge. And so now I'm a, I'm a fascist for wanting people to get vaccinated. But when we were fighting the Nazis in World War II, we had a draft mandate and everybody had to go to the draft. All we're asking people to do now is to take a jab to protect their fellow men and women. So what am I getting wrong? Are these vaccines, this is a question for both of you, two-part question, are these vaccines safe? Yes or no, and why? And then secondarily, what can we do if they are safe, and I believe that they are, what can we do to change the hearts and minds of these people. So let's start with you, Damien. Are these vaccines safe, yes or no? I think the vaccines are absolutely safe. I mean, for, at this point, they've, they've administered, you know, more than 100 million in the United States, okay? There have been some cases that they, there's, it required more study, but there weren't, wasn't anything that made them feel like they were unsafe. There are some breakthrough cases now we're hearing about. I mean, when you have a vaccine that's miraculously 95% effective, that 
when you do more than 100 million people, there's still going to be people who become sick, but they don't tend to, they, the symptoms are better and it's, and it's less severe. Um, so yes, the vaccine is safe. Is there a and microchip in the vaccine? No. The, the government's monitoring you? No, but is I mean, genetically, I, is it genetically altering your DNA? So you're going to, you know, no, turn into not, something that's not human. It is not. It is a vaccine, the kind of vaccine that we've been, you've been given since you were six months old, you've been getting vaccines. Okay. It's the top scientists in the world. You know, it really is a miracle that they were able to do this in under a year. And there's literally hundred, more than a hundred million people who have gotten you know one of three different shots um, in the past you know six months in this country and are you know uh, participating in society and healthy and running and playing basketball and baseball and everything's going and you know having babies and everything is you know working like it should. Now it, it seems like a ridiculous thing to when you mentioned microchips, okay? But of the there was this recent survey that was done that said of the people who are not who refuse to get vaccinated. More than 50%, Anthony, believe that there is some kind of microchip that's being inserted, okay? I mean, it's such a ridiculous thing to, I'm not trying, I'm not being a elitist. No, but look, I but grew up in a blue collar family. These people distrust, you have to understand, yeah. the blue collar people feel they've been left out of the system. So they distrust the system and they distrust the establishment. Let me, Yasmin, let me ask you this question because it's, I, I just want to get your view on it. Um, what do you say to somebody that's not vaccinated? I'm sure you've met them. Maybe you have them in your, I have them in my family, you know, so what do you say? Yeah, I think, I think all of us have, have people in our families or in our friend groups who, who are not getting vaccinated for any number of reasons. I think one thing that's really important is to not be condescending to people who are not getting it for one reason or another, but just explaining to them why they should trust it. The process that it had to go through to be evaluated as safe and effective. Why it's not gonna, the people are seriously concerned it's gonna alter your DNA. And there's a simple is answer it, to is that. Is going which, to make people infertile? No, it's not. And, and, I, and I, I've had friends who are six, seven, eight months pregnant, getting the vaccine and, and the, in the third trimester of their pregnancy, they all delivered healthy babies. People who got the vaccine before they got pregnant. One of my friends got it just a couple months before she got pregnant. Now she's pregnant. Um, so it's there. There's no effect on fertility. It's been studied. It will continue to be studied. And I think, to, like Damien said, we've now seen it administered in hundreds of millions of people. I think one thing that's important to understand about vaccines is for every vaccine on the market, there are adverse events. We just normally don't pay as close attention to other vaccines because they don't have the same kind of historic nature of this one. This one's kind of unique in that we're all getting it no matter age group at the same time, as opposed to childhood vaccines or late adulthood ones or whatever they might be. Um, so I think it's important to, to understand what a particular person's concerns are. If it's, if it's that their DNA is gonna be altered, I think people are mixing up DNA and, and mRNA, which is what the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are. So you can just simply tell them it's actually an mRNA vaccine. It has nothing to do with your DNA. There is no concern that your DNA is going to be altered. On the microchip piece of it, I, I know that that's a, that's a serious concern that people have. I think you have to explain why that's just not a possibility. You, can, you can't put a microchip in a vaccine vial and that would never be approved by the FDA. You can't secretly do that kind of thing. So I think a lot of this is just a lack of trust in the process a lack of trust in the FDA and our public institutions 
for the reasons that you stated that people feel like they've been left behind. So I think it's important to meet people where they are and address their concerns head on, not just keep yelling at them that it's safe and effective, safe yeah, and effective. I, I, I take your point because uh, it is a control thing for some people. You don't want to sound condescending. Mm -hmm. you, you need to get them to make an informed choice. I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy, who's got a series of questions and he gets a lot of attention because he, he gets fan mail. I get hate mail. People are threatening to kill me because I'm a pro-vaxxer. But John gets fan mail about these salt talks, and he always reminds me of the fan mail that he's getting. So just do me a favor. When he asks a good question, don't say, oh, that's a really good question, because it will upset <laughs> me, okay? Go ahead, Darcy. Go ahead. I like to say that I indirectly get death threats directed at you into just our generic inboxes uh, at right, Skybridge well, and Salt. Yeah, we get so... a lot of IR death threats, too. Yeah, yeah look, right. I want people to get vaccinated. I think, I think they, you know, that's all. They get upset with me, you know. Go ahead, John. Yeah. So one thing you guys tackled in the book that I think is fascinating and sort of uh, symptomatic, if you will, of the way the Trump administration administration operated is that who was really in charge of the pandemic response within the White House? You know, was it something that Trump was commanding control and he was, you know, day to day in there, obviously monitoring, uh, you know, logistics around around the vaccine development and and uh, response to the pandemic? Was it Jared Kushner? Was it Mike Pence, who was initially put in charge of the task force? Who was the one that was really leading the charge and ultimately, you know, had some accountability about the response? And I'll start with you on that one, uh, Damien. I would say that no one was in charge. I mean, at, at any given point, you know, the president was in charge briefly. Jared Kushner was in charge of getting masks and gowns briefly. Mike Pence was supposed to be in charge of the task force, but he was constantly being undermined. And he was kind of trying to you know, get, deal with all these conflicting forces, whether they were political or health. Um, Deborah Burks was in charge of certain things, but then she was dramatically undermined. And then Anthony Fauci, you know, uh, I think had a, you know, a, a big role in messaging and did a lot behind the scenes with the vaccine and other things, but the White House did everything they could to keep him from being too powerful. Then you had Mark Meadows, who would come in when he could to kind of, you know, cut the legs out from under certain people when he thought they were getting too powerful. Alex Azar started out with a lot of power initially, but the White House kind of, um, you know, reined him in. So I think one of the biggest problems with this whole response was that there was no one in charge. And, and unfortunately, that had kind of been uh, an element of the Trump White House for the previous three years that worked for the president. You know, he didn't let anyone get too powerful. There was a rotating cast of chiefs of staff. Um, by not allowing anyone to become, you know, too important and play too much of a leadership role, it allowed him to kind of keep everyone on their toes, you know, made people more sycophantic because they were always worried about how they would look in his eyes. And so, so in a case like this, when there was a public health crisis, when he needed truth and information delivered quickly, um, it was a huge part of the problem in the response. Yasmin, you have anything to add to that? I think Damien hit on it. I mean, and, and, and we sort of, we say this in the book, in many ways it was designed so that no one was ever truly in charge uh, because the president wanted to be able to upend things or decide to do things differently at any point in time. And so one of the, I think this was probably the most damaging element of the response is that without leadership, People don't know who they're supposed to listen to. Everyone can try to undercut each other and go behind each other's backs. And when you're fighting a virus this difficult and this lethal, you all have to kind of put aside your differences and unite to fight the virus. That is not what they were doing at all. And it's because at any point in time, people could come in and try to 
outwit each other or try to one up each other and take over the response. And you saw that happen multiple times a month. I mean, at, at, like Damien said, you had Azar and then you had Pence and then you had Kushner for a little bit and then Kushner left and then Burks never really had the autonomy she wanted. So it's just it, in the end, it was just kind of this team of vipers all vying to see who would come out on top. Right. And it's almost as if uh, at this point in the administration's life cycle that everybody had been hollowed out from the administration who had the gumption to challenge the president and to tell him hard truths. And it's almost like, you know, we worried for four years about a bona fide crisis bubbling up that the Trump administration with all of its issues would have to deal with. We got one in the last year of his presidency at a time when he was surrounded all, you know, sort of by yes men that just, you know, wanted to save their own skin uh, rather than serve the public good. Is that an accurate assessment, Damien? Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, Kelly's gone, Tillerson's gone, Mattis is gone. A lot of the people who were, you know, kind of tough enough to stand up to him, obviously, you know, Nielsen was gone. The people who weren't necessarily going to do whatever he said had been pushed out. And so, you know, I was actually just thinking, you know, Anthony mentioned, we talked a lot about vaccines as we should, you know, continue to talk for months. But one of, you know, if you remember that moment in March when they finally agreed um, among, as a task force that they should advocate for people to wear masks. And then the president goes up to make the announcement and says, well, I'm not going to wear one. You know, it's voluntary. So then your right. country is like, well, who do we believe? You know, do we believe Fauci, who a lot of the country believed at the time? Or do we believe when the president says he's not going to wear one and we love him? You know, maybe we shouldn't wear one either. And it was that kind of stuff um, of the lack of a single person kind of delivering a specific message that has plagued the process to this day. Right. And, and the point you were making earlier, Damien, about there being no concrete evidence or testimony from a doctor about Trump getting the vaccine, I thought was very interesting and one that I've never thought about before. And he sort of takes that approach with a lot of different issues, whether it be things like immigration and racism, like he he winks at certain things without fully endorsing them to sort of allow him to play both sides of the coin. So in this case, I guess you were saying that you know there's no hard evidence of him getting vaccinated, but he says he got vaccinated. So if he gets challenged on it, he can say, well, I got vaccinated. Why are you why are you blaming me? But at the same time, the vaccine hesitant and the conspiratorial side of his base can still say, oh, he didn't actually mean it. He's just trying to appease sort of the uh, the woke movement uh, by by saying that he got vaccinated. Is that sort of what you were hinting at? Exactly. And I mean, I think, as you guys know, I mean, with the challenge of writing this book, Yasmin and I felt really strongly that there had to be a book about the pandemic response. There's a lot of Trump books about different things and, and we're, you know, there should be, but there needed to be a specific book about the response. So one of our biggest challenges was, well, what do we know? You know, there was so much misinformation and lying and um, deception. We really wanted to break down what we knew. And so when we, you know, reconstruct, reconstructed that weekend that he was sick, we really spent a ton of time going to different people to try to find out what exactly happened, who exactly was talking to who, how, how sick was he really? Because you can't trust the things that were coming out of his mouth or some of his senior aides' mouth. We really thought it was important, almost as a, as a historical document, to really find out exactly what happened. And so when he says, you know, uh, on a Tuesday night at 9.30 on Fox News that he got vaccinated, well, you know, it's up to us to like try to find out what he can, whether he can back that up. And by not backing that up, whether he was or he wasn't, people can interpret it however they want to interpret it. And, you know, all these right. months later they have. Yeah, I mean, how hard was that reporting around his visit to the hospital when he was infected with COVID? You know, 
it was the first time that I had seen a detailed in-depth reporting of those events, you know, that, that matched up with some things uh, that, that we had heard from other sources, but nobody in the media had, had written about all those inner workings of that visit and just how close he might've been to dying from COVID, which, you know, obviously would have, would have thrown the country into chaos. But how hard uh, was that reporting relative to other things that you guys have reported on within the Trump administration? It was really difficult because at the end of the day, it was a national security failure, right? They didn't protect the president. That's a complete dereliction of duty. And they had the tools they needed to protect him, but they just refused, including the president, refused to use them, whether it was masks or regular testing at the White House or using more reliable tests. So, I mean, Damien and I were reporting for the Post at the time, and I remember reporting on that weekend, we could not get clear answers. We really did not know what was going on. We tried for weeks, and then, of course, it was the election before we knew it. But when we were reporting that weekend and the days following, we were trying, we kept asking the White House, are you contact tracing to try to find out where the president got the infection from and where everyone else got the infection from? Which event was the super spreader event? The, you know, people thought it was the, the big event they had had in the Rose Garden for Amy Coney Barrett's um, uh, Supreme Court nomination. Um, and the, the White House was getting so annoyed at those questions because they were like, why are you asking us for the third day in a row for contact tracing? Like, it's over. The investigation's over. And I think that was just such a clear indication of that they really didn't want the answers to these questions. They, he got out of the hospital. He made it through. And so it was really hard to get answers. And Damien and I couldn't actually get them until pretty close to when we were wrapping up the book because a lot of the people who actually did know about the president's condition and how sick he was and how the events unfolded that weekend were not ready to talk about it until they knew he had lost the election, he was out of power, and that they were not going to go back in and work in you know, the, a Trump administration or the next administration. So it was really only several weeks after the inauguration that we could start getting the people who actually knew to, to, to open up because it turned out a lot of the, his closest advisors themselves had no idea what was going on that weekend. Right. Yeah, it, it was certainly a, a tight circle of people that I think understood the gravity of what was going on. You could piece it together based on certain treatments that he was getting, but there was no, you know, you couldn't responsibly report it in something like the Washington Post without uh, you know, verifying some of those sources. But yeah, I mean, I have another question for you, and it's about the public health community. Obviously, they've done yeoman's work during the pandemic. Dr. Fauci has been sleeping, you know, four or five hours a night at most as he's as he's uh, helped us work through the pandemic. And he's one of many people that have been instrumental in, in trying to limit the number of deaths and, and infections from COVID. But the CDC, the FDA, there's been certain periods of this pandemic that haven't necessarily covered themselves in glory. They've, they've given out either confusing guidance or they've had to backtrack on different recommendations they've given. We're obviously sort of in the heat of battle still right now when it comes to fighting COVID. So I don't think there's gonna be a lot of hand wringing uh, right now. But how do you think long term we might sort of reevaluate the way these uh, public health organizations operate uh, in terms of maintaining consistency, accountability uh, and things like that? I'm so glad you asked that, because well, obviously we spend a lot of time focusing on Trump. One of the strengths Damien and I thought of this book is that we dive pretty deep into the health agencies and to other people who are involved in the response. The president's one of you know several characters throughout the book. So I think this pandemic has really, really stress test the health agencies, especially the CDC and the FDA. 
Um, and I think you're, you're seeing the effects of that now still, even though Trump's not in office, they have a president who you know says he's gonna follow the science and that they can go where the science leads them. They're still making a number of unforced errors and mistakes. And I think part of that is the fatigue of dealing with the pandemic for a year and a half. Um, and also that they're not structured to deal with something like this. They're really not. The CDC was supposed to be the leader in the world. They, they really failed in this response in multiple ways. And a lot of that rests with Trump and political interference, but a lot of it also rests with the agency, just that it's, it's a very slow moving agency. It is not designed to respond to such a fast moving virus like this. They were way too slow with a number of decisions because they kind of rest on academic science and they're not as good at moving in with real-time data and not having the perfect academic data, but saying, okay, this is what we're seeing happening on the ground. So this is what we should do now, like with masks, uh, with the test, um, with some of their guidances. You see it even now with them kind of wringing their hands over what to do about the mask guidance with the Delta variant. Right. And the FDA had so many forced errors last year in authorizing hydroxychloroquine with no evidence that it worked. And the doctors could already prescribe it if they wanted to. Um, with this whole debacle over convalescent plasma. I mean, the reason they held firm on the vaccine, I think, is because they had had so many disasters leading up to it that they were like, we are at risk of destroying this agency's 114 year reputation if we don't hold firm on this. And um, they had seen the effects of making the wrong decision on these other treatments or rolling it out in the wrong way. So they, they really didn't cut corners on the vaccine, which obviously was, was great. But you see them now still struggling with a number yeah. of things and they have so much on their plate. So I think, you know, hopefully people don't forget this pandemic too quickly once we hopefully get through it and really think about why our public institutions were not set up to respond very well to many parts of this crisis and what they need, whether it's maybe the CDC has too much responsibility, maybe they need more flexibility, maybe, you know, the FDA needs to be structured differently. But I think that there needs to be a number of sort of after action reports, hopefully some kind of congressional investigation to look at why the U.S.'s public health institutions didn't do a better job. Right. I think there's there's sort of a middle ground between sort of unbridled veneration of a lot of the, the agencies and the public figures that have led our response to the crisis that, that haven't always done the right thing and openly or uh, questioning all institutions. You know, it's, it's uh, I think certainly some critical questions can be asked of, of uh, certain agencies and people in regard to the response, but I don't think that means we should you know, be questioning science uh, at its heart. But I want to ask a question for both of you sort of in the same vein, and it starts with Yasmin. How many people, and I know there's been public comment from, from various public health officials on this, but we have uh, 600,000 plus people have died from COVID-19 in the United States. What's the number that if we had had a competent and rapid response to the pandemic, What's the realistic number that we could have hoped to limit it to in terms of the number of deaths? We'll start with that. And then Damien, they've always, I think the Trump administration, they looked at the economic impact and the public health impact of COVID as distinct items. You know, it's like, oh, if we just keep things open, the economy will keep going. That was pretty much disproven. I think people, if they were going to get sick and, and potentially die, they weren't going to go out in public to restaurants and things like that. So what do you think the economic impact could have been? Let's say we had a competent response early on in the pandemic. Uh, what do you think the economic, in terms of mitigating the economic impacts we could have had? We'll start with Yasmin and then go to Damien on the second question. 
I will say, I didn't say the good things the agencies did, but they did, they did a lot right too. Um, I don't know that we know an exact number for how many fewer people could would have died with, with a different response because there's so many elements to it. You know, there are studies that have shown if, if everyone had worn masks, you could have prevented, I think, 60,000 deaths or something around that by last August. And that, that would have, you know, been dramatically more for that devastating winter surge. So I think it's safe to say hundreds of thousands of deaths could have been prevented with a better response, with something as universal as, or as, as simple as just getting most people to wear masks. Mask wearing was great in some parts of the country and right. almost non-existent in other parts. Um, and then of course, I think consistent messaging would have made a really big difference. There's such a divide in how seriously people perceive the threat of the virus and that affected what, what measures they were willing to take. And then of course, the fact that the US has a pretty poor safety net just made this exponentially more difficult for low-income people, for essential workers who have to go into work. Um, and, and then of course, for communities of, of color, black and Hispanic people were three times more likely to die than white people from the virus. So there were a number of factors, but if, if there had been an administration paying attention to all of these issues and continually stressing the need to wear masks and it had never gotten to the point it's gotten now, I think it is safe to say hundreds of thousands of deaths would have been prevented. And on the economy, it's such an interesting question. I mean, I think what they did and what they had to do at the time was, you know, an enormous amount of government assistance, you know, in March with the $2 trillion CARES Act, and then they had to come back again with another couple trillion dollars as the year went on. And so what they did in a way was they, you know, prevented the, the stock market came back with the help of the Federal Reserve starting in late March of 2020 to now where it's at record levels. Um, unfortunately, the White House saw the stock market rebound as their indicator that the economy was fine. And really what had happened was the economy was kind of um, addicted to government support because, you know, they gave, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to small businesses. The stimulus checks went out. Unemployment assistance went out. There was no way. And to this day, it continues like the government is still so entracted in the economy that we don't know what will happen when a lot of these programs are allowed to expire. You know, can all these small businesses stand on their own two feet? Um, we don't know. And, uh, you know, will the airline industry really come back or is it if the Delta variant really sweeps through Europe? Is that going to knock the, the, um, the travel industry off? I don't know. I mean, I think what we have to consider is that the hard things were not fixed. There's still millions and millions of Americans who do not have jobs because their job has disappeared. You know, it's not like they're waiting for their employer to rehire them. The company doesn't exist anymore or doesn't need them anymore because of automation or some other reason. And, and we're seeing, you know, these huge supply chain problems. The rental car industry is a total disaster. You can sell your, your used car now for more than you bought it for when it was new. I mean, there's just these things in the economy that are broken. And right. the, the easy thing was just to give everyone money. And we, they had to do that. People needed to survive, you know, but... We don't know now what will happen when, for example, the rental protections expire, you know, are they really going to kick hundreds of thousands of millions of people out of their apartments? Like these harder things haven't been done yet. And that's the legacy of the pandemic. Um, and that's going to be really hard for the Biden administration to sort out. Well, Damien and Yasmin, it's been a pleasure to have you on again. I think you wrote uh, in a sea of, I'm not going to say generic books and criticize the other books, but there's been a lot of sort of political uh, analysis of the Trump administration, while you guys certainly integrated politics into your uh, discussion, I think it was a, 
a masterclass in just evaluating the administration's response to the pandemic and something that's still ongoing and still affecting us today. Uh, what was their initial response and, and the sort of cleaning up of, of that process. But Anthony, you have a final word before, uh, before we let Damon and Yasmin go? No, I, I, I applaud the truth in your book. Uh, I'm shocked by a lot of the decisions that were born from ignorance or insecurity, frankly. And I think it's a cautionary tale about the centralization of power, frankly, because if you get one person in the mix, uh, they can be destabilizing to a whole group of people that know better. And so I think that's really the lesson of the book. So uh, I just want to thank you. It's a, it's a big contribution. And I know people will look back on it and say that this was very valuable to understanding what happened during one of our worst public health and safety crises, which is still going on, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that means a lot, Anthony. Thank you so much for saying that. Oh, but it's, it's yeah, and thanks for letting us come on and talk about it. No, we're, we're going to sell a lot of books for you guys. You deserve it, and uh, we wish you nothing but great success with it. Well, they don't Thank need our so help. They were uh, an instant, instant bestseller. Again, the book is Nightmare Scenario Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the pandemic that changed history. If you haven't ordered it, haven't read it, we, we definitely highly recommend it. By the it. way, Yasmin, he did ask very good questions though, you know, it's sort of upsetting to me. <laughs> he did, no, you, you both did, you no, both no, did, asked, it's not a He asked very good questions, okay? <laughs> you know. You better stop with the firing stuff though, come November, okay? Because I'm obviously- I didn't say firing, I just said- I'm almost spent, a senior uh, citizen now, so I'm gonna be forgetting the fact that you were bringing it up in July by the time your bonus gets set, but you should stop it at some point. I'm just letting you know. I just said you spent a very <laughs> illustrious 11 days. In my opinion, it was the best 11 days of the entire it was, it was 954,000 seconds. That's what I have to tell my therapist, okay? Just everybody relax. <laughs> All right, well, thank you guys again. And, uh, and thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with uh, Damien and Yasmin talking about their book. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website on demand at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on uh, social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference uh, and where Anthony gets a lot of his death threats, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. On behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, uh, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.